You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Actually brought to you in real time. When I say it's brought to you in real time, I mean, we're not doing it live. It's it's brought to you because last week, last week was a disaster of, of, of the making. I'm Lee. Yeah, Ford. and I'm Andy Meakin. And we have a tale to tell. Oh, we have a tale to tell you of reckless abandonments and wild horizons. Oh, no, that's that's just uh, this weekend. Um, yes. So those of you out there in podcast world will know from and all the social media followers will know that last week I wasn't a happy bunny and I was posting quite a lot to say all will be revealed. And all that I said is technical issues. A bit of historical context. When lockdown hit in, we had to find alternative sources for being able to record the podcast remotely. We've gone through this before. We ended up settling on a system called Zencaster. Zencaster was really solid, really sound. The free option gave us all that we needed. We didn't need all the bonus features that the paid subscription went for. That went smoothly until Zencaster started to go for a primarily paid model. The free yeah, version. They to charge our ass. Yeah, the free version would only allow us two hours of recording each month which unfortunately, given that we have at least four episodes per month, we need at least eight hours. So unfortunately, we had to source a different, a different way of doing it. And we settled on Podcastle. And we've had issues with Podcastle. It's not been the most stable, but it's got us by and we got used to it. And then last week, Lee was having dropout and connection issues while we're recording. And that's never been a problem in the past because when he rejoins the room, it just picks up the audio again. And then if there is a slight gap in the audio it's okay i trim it in the post and we got halfway through and went there's a lot of issues let's try a new room so we we we, we, we tried two new rooms if i remember correctly yeah we we fixed issues when we've had connection problems in the past by literally cancelling that room saving off what was there and then starting a new room and so we did that for the second and it wasn't even the second half of the show because we only got as far as the start of the deep dives after two and a half hours of talking and it's not that there was two and a half hours of material there. It's that so much was going wrong because after we closed that first room, it became apparent that Lee's audio hadn't uploaded. And yeah, so what we got was we got just yours. Yeah. Uh, you just sounded like you were talking to yourself, which, which sometimes, hey, when I phase out, you do. It's story of my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my audio wasn't there. And we did a little, we tried to fix it on the day and we couldn't. And then we decided basically call it off as a bad job, didn't we? Yeah, because uh, when we opened the second room, we basically re-recorded all the new section again for the second time. We didn't do all our intro stuff with like the talk about question of the week, etc. We just went, let's just pick up the news to try and get that. And then when we closed that room and ended that, Lee's audio didn't upload. And looking at the frequently asked questions and the like, the help section of Podcastle, they say it's very easy if someone's doesn't upload because it does remote recording on person's computer. Zencaster did exactly the same. And we've had this issue with Zencaster. Now, the difference is the frequently asked questions on Zencaster pointed you in the right direction and it was correct. The one on Podcastle says, oh, it's dead easy. Where it says processing error, drop down the three, bu three buttons. There should be an option. Copy link. Send that to your guest. They can re-upload their audio. That link didn't appear. There wasn't that option for copy link. So I contacted tech support. Now, again, when we've had this with Zencaster, I've had to contact tech support. It took two hours to resolve it with Zencaster. So there was no delay. It took five days 
for Podcastle <laughs> to get back to me and tell me that they'd fixed it and they'd exported my guest audio, which I thought was a bit bizarre since it looked like he hadn't uploaded it. So I downloaded what they thought was 28 minutes of the first section and there was 14 minutes worth of footage of Lee. Not even a continuous flow because it was jumping ahead five minutes at a time every now and then. So I, it was unusable. I checked the rest of the pieces of audio that were there, which one of them was 36 minutes, 12 minutes in reality. It was all junk. And I got back to them and said, look, that's not the right stuff. My guest needs to re-upload their audio. Your frequently asked questions says there's a copy link to be able to send them a link to re-upload. Answer I got back was, I'm not aware of such a such a process. So I had to send them a link to their own frequently asked question. <laughs> At the end of it, they basically just gone, oh, well, we've done all we can do. I was like, well, you've not because you've not even got the systems that you're supposed to have. And then they've offered me one month of their premium. Sorry, no chance. Anyone who uses podcasts out there, condolences to you because they are junk. Their tech support is junk. Now, I wouldn't flame them if it wasn't for the fact that this has just been the most irritating week. What did we use as a backup? So on Monday, after I finished work, and we had to get something done in all the time because I was working right the way through until Thursday. We needed to get this out before Wednesday for the radio version. So on Monday night, I get home from work. I'm tired because I've not slept much and I've been trying to fix the audio that we did have the night before. And so we recorded a whole show. And we initially just said, like, let's just record some bits and I'll see if we can do like a, a compilation show of old things. But we spoke for one hour ten. And it was what, what you heard go out last week was pretty much unedited. There was only small edits they had to do because we were both on that mindset of like, let's get this done. And it shows that when we do it, let's get this done. We can stick to a time frame and get it rattled out because I am so proud of what we did last week. especially oh, the good. Uh, and you also probably noticed that I was uh, I didn't have a microphone. I had a, a piece of tissue paper and a comb. <laughs> And uh, I, and that was my my audio output for last week. So the tissue paper and comb was being replaced <laughs> this week by a much better mic. Um, but it, and it wasn't the mic's fault. And it was just down to the the lateness of the hour of getting the show out. But we've made it. We're yeah. back and again. It, and this it week. went We're out early. A brand new system this week. Last week's show went out early. It went out on the Tuesday yeah, night, yeah, mainly because did, I didn't sleep on Monday night. Getting it out. Obviously, over this week, you know, like after those issues, we're not going back to Podcastle. Zencaster, we'd love to go back to, but we can't afford to pay the subscription to make it feasible. We can basically do one show a month on Zencaster. So uh, I sourced alternative products and checked through loads of reviews. And there was two that caught my eye, and we're testing one of them this week. What we're testing now is StreamYard, which is a full ensuite streaming and recording software. It's basically designed for if we want to live stream a show on Twitch or YouTube. We can do everything we want. So I've got all the music stings. I mean, I've got the whooshes in there that we can play as I'm recording, which saves me in the edit. We can see each other on screen. I can lay it out how I want if I want to cut bits for the YouTube channel. And I can throw audio, visual, and scrollers on the screen. So it's quite a nice little tool. If it, this works well, we could be settled on this. If not, I've got Riverside on the back burner, which does a similar kind of thing. And both of them have a really good free plan. But if this pays off, if this works out, we might be subbing for the low end subbing so we can do like different things like change the backgrounds or put logos in there and basically do have a lot of freedom. So when we tested it the other night, we jumped on for about, what, 15 minutes just to play yeah, around. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we were like the test pilot at the beginning of Green Lantern. You know, the one that test pilot, his dad, <laughs> Green Lantern's dad, which crashes and burns. We've not crashed and burned yet. I mean, there's still not time. Yet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> give us a chance. So far, so good. So that's been a heck of a week. 
I have been, I've hardly slept, to be honest with you. Have you pulled your hair out? All the, all the, I've not got any hair to pull out, as people who know me actually know. But um, what little hair was there has gone now. Let's just move away from the technical issues because it will just wind me up even more just thinking about it. But the, the model of this story is Zencaster is great, but costs money to be great. Podcastle is garbage. Even if you pay money, it's going to be garbage because their tech support is the worst thing of it. And that's the key thing. Tech support needs to be better. So far, StreamYard seems good. <laughs> Obviously, if we have tech issues on this, we'll be reporting on that at a later date. But in the meantime, here we are. And we've made it through a week. So we missed a week, as you know. <laughs> that leads us quite nicely to our online social challenge, which uh, catching up, it seems like, oh, such a long time since we asked the question. And that question was, it was all about cinema posters. What is the worst cinema poster that you've ever seen? We also asked, what was your favourite? If you were still with us, if you're still hanging in, you want to know what everyone thought. Andy, what were the replies? Over a week ago, we had quite a smattering of, sort of replies across all the social channels. Let's start with Facebook, where Patricia Meakin thought that the one for Psycho was brilliant. It must have piqued anyone's or everyone's curiosity and caused the beginnings of queuings for films. Because Psycho, the whole marketing, was all about getting people getting people to get to this film before it starts. Because there was a culture... Even during my childhood, there was the culture of you turn up at a cinema and you go in and you catch the end of the previous performance before you start watching the performance that you've actually bought the tickets for. But Psycho, Hitchcock was determined to break that culture and all the posters were basically, no, the doors will be locked as soon as the film's on screen. No admission until the film ends. Peaks the interest. What's so secretive about this? What's the big surprise? We know now what the big surprise was, but boy, that must have been amazing back then. Lee Leary. Loved the golden ITs, which just said, you know the name, you know the number. And at the bottom, it said, now shooting around the world. Remember when there used to be huge poster campaigns, like three years yeah. in advance? Now it's like six months in advance, maybe. Sometimes you get ones one year. But generally, you'll get, you used to get them saying this has gone into production. I don't think you take the risk anymore because so many things go into production and then never go anywhere, particularly if it's Warner Brothers and it gets cancelled for tax reasons. He's a big Bond fan. He's also a Pierce Brosnan Bond fan, and he got a buzz every time that he walked past it, knowing that Bond was going to be returning to the big screen. Lindsay Story had quite a few to suggest. Loves all the old painted ones. Tom Young posters, uh, Indiana Jones, Goonies, and of course, Star Wars kind of ones. But the one that always drew her to it when she was a kid going to the video shop was the Lord of the Rings, Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, the cartoon edition. I've got a huge love for that. I think that that poster image, which is also the VHS and DVD and Blu-ray sleeve design, is just a beautiful piece of art. Also really likes the Hammer Horror ones. Thinks that The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires is one of my faves. And the Amicus film well, Asylum. Poster, yeah. Yeah. Um, loves the Lost Boys, as it's one of favourite posters. And Joker, the poster designs, she has a couple of different style ones around the house, which she posted a few pictures of. She's got the one with the silhouette of his head, with Joker in the middle of it, and then the stair stairwell that he stood on. But the one that re I really love out of the Joker campaign is where it took the Mean Street, uh, took the Taxi Driver poster and replicated that. It's a great design. I mean, the Taxi Driver aesthetic was a great poster anyway but adapting it to basically convey the fact that Joker is going to have similar themes to Scorsese's early work. Uh, Owen Cooper, favourites are Train Spotting, Old Boy, Big Trouble in Little China, Alien, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And for ones that they hate, uh, the Tim Allen film, The Shaggy Dog, 
which if you can remember that one, it was the close-up of the dog's face with Tim Allen's blue eyes piercing out of it in oh, a, yeah, so I'm, go I'm going to eat your soul kind of way. And the legacy posters for X-Men First Class, which had the silhouettes of Professor X in the wheelchair and Magneto, but with the floating heads of the new cast in the middle of them. And it just looked weird. All the ones that are notoriously bad, I'll try and source them all out and I'll post them all up on the Facebook page so that people can see them all together and decide for yourselves whether we're right and how bad they are. Over on Mastodon, Salty Red Popcorn, Bangkok Dangerous. Is that the one with the terrible poster? Uh, that one immediately came to the mind. And yes, that one is terrible. I'd not seen that until we did the mock show last week. <laughs> Boy, that's a bad poster. Some really bad sort of art directions, like taking the gun out of Nicolas Cage's hands. So he's just holding nothing. He's holding all these keys. There's so many things wrong with it. Everything is a cut and paste job throughout it. And it's it looks like it's been flipped, mirrored, cut, pasted. And it's the most Frankenstein monster of a poster design that there is. Um, he's also said any poster that has mis mismatched names above their heads. Uh, so many great ones to choose from. However, the Indiana Jones movie posters stand out in particular. And special mention for the terrible composition tagline for the Yogi Bear movie poster, which you might remember there was the long banner one, which had Yogi and Boo Boo in close-up head, Boo Boo at the front. And they both got beaming smiles on the face with a look of startled surprise. With the tagline, great things come in bears. It was not a good idea. Um, I will throw that one on the Facebook page because every time that I see yeah, it, I don't, I don't remember that one. I'm glad that Salty Red mentioned the posters that has mismatched names above the head because that's one of my particular bugbears that you might remember. I said I've got a particular bugbear that I'm not going to mention just in case he influenced people. Turns out I'm not the only person, and I mean that when you've got a lineup of the cast, and I know that it's always start the the lineup of names always starts with the highest billing. And the lineup of cast, they tend to put the highest billing towards the centre. But there are examples where that doesn't wash with me, such as the score, which had Robert De Niro and Edward Norton. And there's the two of them. They're both the lead actors. They could have just put their pictures the other way around because they've got Robert De Niro's name over Ed Norton and vice versa. But there's other examples where there's been only two members of cast and they, they've sadly got the wrong names directly above them. And there's no reason. There's the Eddie Murphy and Robert De Niro cop film. I can't remember what it's called now. But that one, every one of the four different posters had the wrong names over the wrong actor. Very bizarre. Over on Blue Sky, because we are now on Blue Sky. Yes, we got that invite and we got, in, got over yeah, there. Uh, we had our first response over there from icetech.bluesky.social, who said the altered states has a few really good posters. And yeah, they're, they're like that classic sci-fi novella kind of design. You know, the pulpy sci-fi looks. I'll dig out some of them and hopefully get them put up on the Facebook page so that people can see for themselves what the good posters are. And over on X Twitter, uh, Harvey Morton said, The Dark Knight, for the favourites, The Dark Knight, up, Call Me By Your Name, Cloverfield, Little Miss Sunshine and The Conjuring. And the worst, <laughs> you can't disagree with these, Avengers Age of Ultron and X-Men Days of Future Past. I've, I've got a couple to mention. There was a, a Chuck Norris movie called Top Dog. If you've never seen oh, the poster for that, it is really one of the most horrendous things you'll ever see of any design. I'm not even going to describe it because I think I would just fall into a pit of insanity. So I'm going to up it by talking about great posters. The original Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the painted yeah. poster. I can't remember who did it. Um, 
but it's a thing of beauty. And a poster I had on my wall for years, which was the Hildebrandt Brothers promotional painting for Star Wars. So it doesn't really look like uh, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, but it is stunning. Heroic Luke Skywalker holding a lightsaber behind him into the stars is Darth Vader and the Death Star. It was beautiful. Um, the Highlander poster, uh, yep. that was a, a painted poster. Again, absolutely stunning. I, I had that. I had a huge French one. It was full size. Absolutely uh, uh, enormous poster. Loved it. Uh, Stephen Young, who answered via uh, the link on Spotify, he's just fo focused on the favourite, and it's the Batman 1989 poster, the yellow and black being so striking. Oh, iconic. Uh, it was so iconic that thieves were pinching the posters. Uh, there was loads of news stories at the time of, like, particularly the underground versions in New York and London, which didn't have all the cast blurb and production credits at the bottom. It was just the pure image. Literally within 10 minutes of them getting put up, they're, they're gone. Um, Do you remember the Batman by... Returns one, which was the same poster, but with snow? But with the snow drifting across it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's simple design, and sometimes simple design is what you need. And that's where a lot of posters go wrong, is they try to throw a load of images into there when you can just keep it very basic and very simple. I agree with you, the painted ones from my childhood. There's ones that you've already mentioned, you know, the Star Wars ones, the Indiana Jones ones. Um, Tron, the original Tron artwork, is always a, an image that I always gravitate towards, think it's beautiful. For the 80s, Back to the Future, I think, is one of my favourite yeah. poster designs of all time. I know that they then replicated it for Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3 by adding more characters behind. It was a bit of fun, but that initial one was just such a striking image. And in modern day, any Wes Anderson posters always pique my interest. Grand Budapest Hotel especially, which, as I've mentioned many times, I have the canvas print artwork form of it on my living room wall. Uh, bad ones for me. We've mentioned the lineup of names. I despise the lazy, love actually inspired, insipid designs, which has permeated so many films ever since Love Actually. You know, the ones where it's just like eight images of cast all looking full of joy and tweeness uh, with like usually a red ribbon tied around it and it's a white background. Ugh. Films like Valentine's Day, garbage like that. Mediocre posters, unoriginal. And for poster fails, Photoshop issues, etc. Ready Player One's hugely long leg of him climbing up the ladders because they've obviously edited something and forgot to edit something else. Thor Dark World poster, which threw everything at the canvas. It's a, it's a poster that's so bad that the spoof one that ended up getting put up in Japanese theatres or something with him hugging Loki instead was actually a better poster. There's a film called Hit by Lightning that I've seen a poster for. Seriously, Google that one. That's hilariously bad. And the penthouse. Oh, I've seen that one. one. Yeah, that, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a work of art of, of pure, <laughs> a pure terribleness. If there is such I a mean, term, you, you generally think that they put more work into making that look so bad than what they could have done if they had made it look good. And in recent recent years, there was the poster for What Men Want, which I refer to as the Hand of Shame. Uh, when we got the standee in for this at work. I put it up and just rolled on the floor laughing because she's holding two baseballs in her hand, but it clearly wasn't two baseballs. It clearly was maybe one baseball or an apple or something at one point, but they photoshopped it and stretched it so that her little finger is now coming out from her wrist. Her thumb has been stretched about five feet long. Her middle finger has turned into a weird stump. It's a mess. 
And when, when, when I mocked it, I took a photo of it and posted it on my uh, social media channels. And I'm friends with, uh, with someone who works for the distributor of that film. And his response was like, yeah, you don't need to be so harsh, Andy, but thanks for putting the standy up at least. <laughs> I have to say that my, my friends who work for distributors in the marketing department, so in the promotions department, they've got a very good sense of humor and they accept whenever I'm a bit mocking of their products. <laughs> if you want to see great film posters, uh, check out the, the master, really, the godfather of, of posters. And for me, that's Drew Struzan, um, a fantastic book of all mm. of his work is out there. It's quite pricey, worth getting, all, getting a hold of and just seeing the amount of great posters, including... Uh, Big Trouble in Little China, for instance, which is a beautiful poster. So that leads us quite nicely on to this week's social challenge. Our social challenge for this week is we've been watching, as you'll have noticed from last week's show, The Continental, which is a prequel of sorts to the John Wick series. Got us thinking, some prequels work, some are unnecessary, but if you could have a prequel, to a film series, what would you choose? Do you want to know the origin story of a certain character? Do you want to know about the world before that certain character turned up in it? Let us know via our social challenge. Yes, uh, you can do that by following us on social media and answering the question on there. We're on most social media channels. Search for Film File UK. If we pop up, we're on there and the question will get posted. Instagram, Facebook, X, Twitter, Blue Sky. Instagram, etc. Or you can get directly in touch with us, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you're listening on Spotify, the question of the week will be in the show notes and you can answer it directly to us in there and even get your name in fame. Look back on earlier episodes. Stephen gets popped up on there quite frequently. Prequels that I'd like to say, I think that they really should make a prequel to those Star Wars films that we saw in 1977 to the mid-80s. I don't know if they'll you know, telling, popular, Andy. Really telling don't. you how Darth Vader turned to the dark side. I know there's been some fan fiction stuff out there that was made but you know i want to see a proper story that actually makes sense so that's the social challenge but what have we got for you on this week's show well as ever it's an action-packed show because we have a deep dive into bram stoker's dracula from 1992 we have reviews of i've watched three films this past week the creator dumb money and saw 10 but before any of that We've got the box office and the news. Let's kick off with this week's box office. We are out of the strike, so that gives us some news. But what's doing well right now across the UK, the US and worldwide, as far as those figures go? So in the US box office this weekend, Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, took the top spot, taking 22.8 million. The first film did a fantastic load of business. So this second one was always going to be a family favorite success, which means that the new Saw film, Saw X or Saw 10, opened in second place with 18.3 million. The Creator, another new entry, opens in third place with 14.1 million. The Nun 2 drops down into fourth place with 4.8 million. And The Blind is in fifth place with 4.4 million. Here in the UK, the creator took the top spot. It's doing fantastic internationally. And with it only being an 80 million budget, it's looking very likely to recoup that cost pretty soon into its run. The new Saw film is in second place in the UK. Haunting in Venice, holding into the top five, taking third place. The Nun 2 in fourth place and Equalizer 3 in fifth place. That's the box office. But, of course, the big news is the end of the writer's strike. 
We called it last week. It's now official. It does mean that Hollywood can get moving again on starting to develop work, finish scripts, start new shows, start new movies. So there's been a level of activity. Of course, nothing has gone into production because... <laughs> well, not exactly nothing, but the main features, etc., that are now getting pushed for going into planning stages still need the actors to be able to star in front of the cameras, which hopefully, now that the writer's strike has ended and the deal was reached, we'll start to see some movement on the negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP. Um, in a statement issued earlier this week by the Actors' Union SAG-AFTRA, they've said that they are meeting this coming week to start the talks for bargaining. In their words, as negotiations proceed, we will report any substantive updates directly to you. It sounds like they're going to be going in with the same kind of negotiations that the WGA did with the AMPTP, which had five long days of talks that finally reached that agreement that they voted on and gave the thumbs up to this week. So we, we might have the end in sight, but let's not start getting too excited just yet because there's still a bit of a road to go for for the actors to get their fair treatment. According to Variety, this week, movies that saw their film shoots interrupted, Beetlejuice 2, Gladiator 2, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, Deadpool 3, Twisters, Jury Number 2, are all expected to get the call to return to set once the SAG-AFTRA work stoppage ends. And other films such as the Minecraft film, Superman Legacy, which have got completed scripts, are still on track for spring shoots and script work on Fast X Part 2. There's a script for the Fast and Furious films. Really? Yeah, I mean, they wrote it. On the back of a fag packet. Come on, let's be That's honest. news to me, isn't it? Batman 2 and Star Trek 4 and Rainbow 6 are expected to get underway to get their script treatments now that the writer's strike is over. And on the TV front, networks and streamers are focused on resuming work on long-running shows returning or hit services with a few big-budget freshman services that were already in pre-production. House of the Dragon is now able to complete its second season production because, if you remember, that had a predominantly British or European cast, and so it wasn't covered by the Screen Actors Guild strike. However, they got far into the production and realised they need some of their writers on set, and that was covered by the strike. So now that those writers can go back to work, they can wrap up that show. In addition, the first things that come back will have already made the airwaves by the time this show will airs, and that's your late-night panel talk shows from John Oliver, yeah. Bill Mayer, etc. And Drew Barrymore can now make her show Without being... Without bursting no, into <laughs> tears and having to make apologies. Yes. So, well done, Drew. You can go back to work now, now that everyone hates you. If you had to just held off for one week, you wouldn't have got all that backlash. Just think if she had to just told the line. I'm looking forward to seeing what John Oliver... I mean, it'll have aired by the time we got this, but as we're recording, it's tonight that it airs. I've been looking forward to John Oliver coming back. I've got negative suspicion. It's going to be a whole episode devoted to talking about the strike actions, which could be quite a good bit of insight. So the rumour mill has started with the MCU and it is reported that now the strike is over, that the X-Men film has begun some kind of uh, development. The only thing we know at this stage is that it apparently won't include Wolverine in the initial team lineup, but we might have to put that into Pinch of Salt Corner. Yeah, they're taking the pictures at the moment for the X-Men films and they'll be doing this over the next few months as to where they could start it, where they could go with it. 
But let's hold our breath on anything X-Men related, given that we've still got a few years of Marvel films planned ahead of us. There's various sequels that we've been told are going to happen, but we've not seen any sign of Shang-Chi. I'm looking at you. There's the Blade movie that I'm convinced is just going to remain as vaporware forever at this rate. It's always going to be in pre-development somewhere. They're spacing out the releases more and more for the deliberate reasons that they don't want to oversaturate the market because that's what they've been doing too much of. So the X-Men films, we could be looking at like 2028 by the time we get to see any X-Men in the Marvel Universe. Remains to be seen. I'd like them to go back really to the to the very first comics and have the the original lineup of Angel, Beast, mm. Iceman, Cyclops and Marvel Girl. That would be great. That's That's the X-Men I would like to see. I'm I'm talking about saturating the market. It sounds like Sony Pictures has scrapped the plans (laughs) for the Spider-Man character, Silver Sable, with her solo outing. Oh, what a shame. We put that into a new corner called, well, Big Surprise Corner. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Silver Sable has been getting bandied around for a few years, and it was at various hands and various stages of thought process. Uh, at one point, it was going to be a Silver Sable and Black Cat team up. Yeah, It looks like it's being completely scrapped. And you know what? I'm not that bothered. I'd like to see a Black Cat movie, but I'd like to see a Black Cat Mary Jane team up. And anyone who's been reading the comic series of Black Cat and Mary Jane will know exactly why I'd like to see that, because those two work a treat together. Um, but Silver Sable, never being a character that thoroughly interested, uh, interested no, it's me. No, a supporting character again. It's not a character that deserves two hours of a of, of someone that you've barely heard of, and and mass audience would would maybe recognise her from the game, but that's yeah. it. She's always been a supporting character. I, I know there was a brief run, there was a couple of brief runs here and there, but but nothing. Um, since Bob Iger's return uh, to Disney as CEO, he's pulled back, as we know, on lots of spending and reduced the level of content being made. For, for streaming and we know that his predecessor bob chapak well he basically went all out on creating a much bigger cinematic universe that was expanding into television with basically a new show every couple of months one of the announced shows was vision quest which was going to be somewhat of a uh, follow-up to uh wandavision and the rumor was that it would adapt the tom king miniseries which trust me is is well worth adapting however it now seems that that project has been scrapped and we are likely to see vision reappear and his story being folded into uh, something called the children's crusade which to be honest all i know about it is it's about wanda's children trying to track down her mother Mark me down as interested. Yeah, I mean, one division. Hey, kind of see ended. Paul Bettany come back. I'd love to see Paul Bettany reprise the role. in the role. So yeah, interesting. But let's just see. Like I say, everything in MCU now needs to be in pinch of salt corner because we just don't know. I was talking at work with uh, one of my colleagues, and we were saying that the problem the MCU's got now is there's too many characters, and so yeah. y- your chances of seeing sequels to some of your favourite characters are getting more and more minimal as the workspace is just tied up. Only team-ups are the only way to do it, or TV shows. We'll see. Meanwhile, over at DC, now due to a certain cultish sector of fandom who deliberately get confused over extremely clear messaging on the new DCU timeline <laughs> and canon. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'm but talking we won't about mention the fan- them by name. 
I'm talking about the fandom who always try to claim that you have to be smart. You have to be a smart thinker to understand Zack Snyder's films, as though there's some complex tapestry of weaving materials. But they also said that because Zack stated the Snyder Cut was done, it's finished and, and in the can. They insisted that it was right up until, you know, that story changed to being, oh, it needs 80 million to finish it. But, you know, no, what none of their stuff ever confuses things. But they've been constantly harassing James Gunn for no reason except for they're not going to see their own stuff brought to, brought to the screen and deliberately sowing seeds of confusion as to what's canon and what isn't. The Flash comes out like, oh, they're going to carry this character over, but they're not going to carry this. So James Gunn's had to go online this week using Threads, which is his preferred platform due to the lack of toxicity on there and an actual support base that bans people for being abusive, to clarify what was pretty darned obvious to anyone with half a brain. His post, nothing is canon until Creature Commandos next year. A sort of apatif to the DCU. And then a deeper dive into the universe with Superman Legacy after that. It's a very human drive to want to understand everything all the time. But I think it's okay to be confused on what's happening in the DCU, since no one's seen anything from the DCU yet. And yes, some actors will be playing characters they played in other stories, and some plot points might be consistent with plot points from the dozens of films, shows, and animated projects that have come from DC in the past. But nothing is canon until CC and Legacy. You know. Remember when James Bond came back with Judy Dench playing yeah. the same M with a different Bond, and we just accepted it? Yeah, we didn't. We didn't get that upset. No, I think I, I don't think anyone got upset. It, you're absolutely right. It was just accepted. It felt like a bridging device. Well, this is all that it is. Any characters that are carrying over, any cast who are carrying over in the same roles, it's because they're so good at those roles that they just want to keep them around, even if it'll be a new interpretation of that role. Just go with it. Just let it play. Let it have fun and stop overly confusing things when it's quite simple what's going on. Um, Superman Legacy is set to film next year, assuming the actor strike is resolved by that point, which is very likely, let's be honest. And it's expected to open in mid-2025. And I, for one, am going to be first in line. There, there's something in Pinch of Salt Corner about Superman Legacy. What's in do Pinch wanna, of Salt Corner? Do you want to hear it? Did you yeah, really want to hear it? Go on. Kurt Russell as Jor-El. That's a nice Pinch of Salt. Yeah. Oh, I'd like that pinch of salt. I'm not beholden to it, but I like that bit of sprinkling of salt. Over at Mattel, still riding high on the success of the Barbie movie, Mattel CEO Yonan Kreese has briefly spoken about the forthcoming adaptation of Barney the Dinosaur. This is the one that Daniel Kaluuya is attached to film, and it aims to subvert expectations about what a Barney film could be in the same way that Barbie was a tribute and satire of that property. Um, speaking with Semaphore, Kreese has said, it's too early to be specific, but I can tell you we're taking a fresh approach that will be fun, entertaining and culturally orient orientated. It will not be an odd movie. It's not clear what he means by it won't be an odd movie. It, it probably follows the comments early this year where they tease that it'd be surreal and lean into the millennial angst of the property. And he's kind of clarifying, it's like, it's not going to be too surreal. Don't expect something far out there, but they are going to do something Barbie-esque and creative with it. The hope is that they do. What made Barbie a success is they gave it to an indie filmmaker and writer and let them do their own thing with it. I don't want Mattel to start turning around to new creators and going, oh, I like your vision, but Barbie worked for this. Can you force this into it? Studio interference is what kills films. So hopefully Barney the Dinosaur will not get studio interference. Hopefully we'll get to see a play for adults once more. Yeah, Mattel, I, I, that's the as one we've reported, about Mason, please. 
Yes. Uh, well, that's still on the in the pipeline with Tom Hanks attached alongside other Mattel properties, such as the Hot Wheels film, which J.J. Abrams was attached to, Rock'em Sock'em Robots with Van Diesel, a Polly Pocket film directed by Lena Dunham, and a Matchbox Cars project, which is still seeking someone to take charge of that one. But the Major Matt Mason with Tom Hanks, that's your dream. That's your dream film with your dream casting. It is. Dream film. Don't blow it, Mattel. Don't blow it. Recently, there's a trend for stage adaptations of major movies. Mm. We've already spoken about the Stranger Things prequel play, which is opening in a couple of months in London. There has been an announcement on a paranormal activity play and a minority report play. And looking at keeping the trend going, there is now added to that list a musical version of the 2004 comedy which starred Jennifer Garner as Jenna Rink, who was originally a 13-year-old who fantasized about who fantasized about skipping the awkward teenage years and just growing up at the age of 30. It was called 13 Going on 30. The original writers are back and they are taking that concept and taking it to the stage with music and lyrics by high school musical, the musical and series duo, Michael Weiner and Alan Zachary. I'll be there for, I'd like to be there for Paranormal Activity. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of 13 going on 30. And I'm very intrigued by a minority report stage play. The 13 going on 30, I'll lump alongside your things like your Legally Blonde stage play. That Whilst the films are okay, I don't really see any need for a stage adaptation. But thinking of how creative a paranormal activity stage play could be. Mm. I mean, could, we've seen, in, really, we've really seen in modern years, I mean, stage productions such as Life of Pi, which has the the scenery around it, like it's constantly moving and moulding. There was stage productions such as the adaptation of the additional material for His Dark Materials, which... And of course, the Harry that, Potter one. That is beautiful with projected imagery to give storms and everything, moving sets, and it, it feels immersive. The audience feel like the part of the show at times. Paranormal Activity could really, really have fun with that, and I'd be well and truly there for it. They're a mixed bag, the adaptations to stage. Sometimes they're just not necessary. Sometimes I make saw themselves... Brassed Off on stage, and it was one of the most appalling things I've sat through. <laughs> Great cast, but really poor play. I had a feeling that you weren't going to be a fan of it on stage. I, I wasn't I wasn't a huge fan of it as a film. It came out in nah, it came out nah. it came out round the time that everything seemed to be going for that. Let's do Yorkshire working man yeah, tales. A... It was on the coattails of uh, Full Monty. Full Monty. Okay, deja vu time. We're going. We're going to cast our mind that. back. We're going to cast our mind. That very funny. We're going to cast our mind back about eighteen months. When every week we had more news about Scorsese and upsetting fandoms by saying he doesn't like Marvel films, which turned out to be he doesn't know the difference between Marvel and DC anyway. So he was just talking about superhero films. Well, what's been all over the internet this week? Is it Martin Scorsese talking about superhero films? Well, it's Martin Scorsese being out of context again. He's done a fantastic interview with a thing, GQ, that is well worth reading. It's a great insight, once again, into the mind, the life, and the workings of possibly the finest director on our planet, who is entitled to his own opinion on the industry that he works in, and he's passionate about the industry that he works in, and he wants all films to have a chance. And his argument this time is, to quote him, he's talking about blockbusters and franchise event movies. And he said, 
the danger there is, is what it's doing to our culture. Because there are going to be generations now that think movies are only those. And that like genre blockbusters and franchise movies is all that movies are. Because they dominate the box office. There's no room for the smaller independent films. This is coming from a guy who, in order to get his last couple of films made, had to go to streamers, had to go to tech giants. Killers of the Flower Moon is getting praise left, right and centre. It's an Apple film. This should have been a big studio film, but the, he's, he's having to go to streamers because the big studios don't want to touch it. He's got, he went on to say, they already think that, which means that we have to fight back stronger. And it's got to come from the grassroots level. It's got to come from the filmmakers themselves. You have, you know, the Safdie brothers, you have Chris Nolan, you know what I mean? Hit them from all sides, hit them from all sides and don't give up. Let's see what you've got. Go out there and do it. Go and reinvent. Don't complain about it, but it's true. We've got to save cinema. And nothing he said there is wrong. There does need to be, I work in cinemas and I agree that there needs to be room for the broader range of films. We can't just dominate screens with the blockbusters because people will get tired of them very quick you need the range you need the independent films you need the smaller productions you need the surprises you need the charm you need the art thankfully we've got the a24s of the world as studios who are managing to get success but the studios the big studios disney warner and universal should be doing the same there was a time when they used to do big blockbuster but then they'd use the money from that big blockbuster to channel into loads of independent productions. And yes, Fox, Disney still has the searchlight model, but they don't put big money behind the marketing of them because the big money is going behind the films that don't need marketing. And this is what he's trying to argue. But as you can imagine, the press took what he said and headlined it as Martin Scorsese hates Marvel films, which is not what he said at all. And because we live in a society where people online don't actually read articles, everyone read the head headline. And for the past week, it's been a nonsense nonsense place online of people arguing over Marvel films are better than DC. Scorsese likes DC better. We're back to where we were 18 months ago because of one interviewer stupidly asking the question that we already know the answer to. Stop it, interviewers. Stop asking Martin Scorsese what Do he thinks of blockbuster films. Going in. <laughs> this is how the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a nerd-fueled wave of tears, apparently. Scorsese is entitled to every opinion that he's got, and he's not wrong in anything that he says. So, we're in October, which means it's Halloween. And Yay. we haven't got a Halloween film out this year, but that's because the franchise for the Halloween is up for grabs again. We know that Blumhouse had it for the last three films. David Gordon Green's films are done, and so... Malik Akkad's Trancast International Films, which solely owns the television rights and co-owns the film rights with Miramax, is now uh, seeking a bidding war between different studios. A24 and Miramax are said to be the two main parties currently battling for the A24 TV rights. A24 would be an interesting take. Yeah. If A24's logo gets slapped onto the Halloween franchise, I am there. A24 are apparently leading the charge as well. They recently won, won the rights to produce Crystal Lake, which is the TV series, which is going to be based upon Friday the 13th. Brian Fuller is going to be working behind that. And if I... Hang on, wait a minute. Let's talk about <laughs> the Brian Fuller curse before we move well, yeah. any further on that, because our love for Brian Fuller knows no bounds. However, whenever he gets behind a series, it's never going to happen. We're still waiting for Christine, <laughs> Brian Fuller. He'll move on to something else and someone else will pick up the threads and do something different or he'll do a season one and then we won't see season two or he'll do season one and two and then he'll get cancelled or, so, or he'll argue with someone halfway through season one 
and they'll take yeah. over on the production for the rest of it as he walks off in a soul. But we do love him. And I think it's a perfect trinity together. Friday the 13th, Brian Fuller, TV series. Boom. It should be great. But yeah, the Halloween franchise is up for grabs. So if you've got any spare pocket money, see if you can pick it up. As we predicted, The Abyss is coming to 4K UHD at some point. Yeah, we called it. At the Beyond Fest Festival, where he was screening a copy of the film, it was a polished up 4K remaster. And he announced that I've completed the transfer. All the mastering is done. I think it drops pretty soon, like in a couple of months or something like that. It's out of his hands at present. It's now into the production hands. So fingers crossed there's going to be loads of added material. There was loads of material on the DVD release of it. So hopefully we'll get that material and maybe a few more additional features and featurettes to tie in around it. So looking forward to that. And you remember that I said that I'm currently watching episodes of Moonlighting. You said it and I and I responded by telling you it was one of my most loved series ever. Well, everyone's going to get a chance to revisit Moonlighting because no from next week, Hulu in the US. So let's just look at Disney Plus and keep an eye on there because it's probably going to land over there. Moonlightings, 67 episodes will all be getting released. And I'll, uh, be, on the... I'll be there for those guys. I miss them so much. They were like long lost friends when I, uh, I, I watched an episode a couple of years back. According to reports, there's rights issues involved in some of the episodes because of the music that was used, but they've managed to get the rights to about 97% of the music that was used as incidental stuff. So all your beloved theme tunes, etc., will still be there, including the Algero theme song itself yeah. um, it i believe that there's a couple of rolling stones tracks that were used in some scenes that they couldn't get the issue to and so they've had to replace them out and this is a common thing with anything that moves over to streaming we've seen it on scrubs we've seen it on so many shows over the recent years there, there was a musical episode as well which used um billy joel songs yes so that might not not happen speculative uh, i know but uh, if that's but we'll uh, find out yeah, yeah, boy, I'm, I'm so in. Hope, hopefully, yes, I'd, I'd love it to go to Disney Plus. I'd, I'd really like to revisit it properly. Uh, it's been three trailers that have caught my eye this week. First one, Rick and Morty new season trailer. Well, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like um, it was like a good wig. You know, <laughs> it's a wig, but you're looking for the join. What we're talking about, in case you're not seeing it, is that we know that Justin Roiland was ceremoniously booted off every project after all the allegations about him and his further behaviours came to light. And he provided the voices for Rick and Morty and various other characters. And so everyone's been expecting this to not feel right. And yet that trailer landed and there's literally only one section in it. And that's when Rick is having a rant that it doesn't sound perfectly Rickish. Everything else sounds absolutely the same. And Morty sounds spot on. And I think I was absolutely gobsmacked. They're not going to reveal who the new voice artists are until the first episode has dropped. They're keeping it all secret. There is a load of speculation and a conspiracy theory online that it's because it's Justin Roiland in a dress. (laughs) And he's, uh, (laughs) he's just got a false identity and turned up and played it again. But it's so good. Everyone who had doubts that they'd be able to continue without him turns out when you've got a bunch I, of characters... I hold my hand up, Andy. I, I had serious doubts. Mm. I really did. And then, I, I in fact, I'm, I'm, I'll be really honest. I watched the trailer and then I thought, am I watching a previous year's trailer? Mm. And did I get it wrong? Whoever's doing the voices, it's a, it's a stunning version of an impression. And it is an impression. I'm sure the actors yeah. will do everything to make the role feel like theirs. 
but uh, it was it was pretty spot on to the point where you go, I won't I won't miss these guys because we've had it before. Mm. A, a voice change, as much as an actor change, can throw you out of a series. Do you remember a Bill and Ted cartoon oh, series? Yes. Yeah. Well, initially it was Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves, and then they recast them, I think, yeah. for the second season with the Bill and Ted who played them on TV series. <laughs> And it just yeah. took away the, the, the charm of it and, and was therefore unwatchable because you'd had Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter doing the voices. Yeah, that second season, it rapidly plummeted downhill. Yeah. Other trailers? Uh, there was the first trailer for Argyle, the uh, Matthew Vaughan. Yeah, it just it looked okay. It, it looks Matthew Vaughan. It looks it's Matthew Vaughan, yeah. Um, but what I found about it was it, it felt like the issues we've had with the big budget Netflix action shows. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, ghosted looking at you, Apple TV. Mm. Yeah. It just looks a bit too glossy. clean around the edge, I think. Is our, yeah, glossy, clean around the edge. It, it just doesn't look like it's got a, a thrill to it. But yeah. it's Matthew Vaughan. And I do find that regardless of what I think going into his films, I, I do kind of buy into them as they're playing in front of me. So fingers crossed on it. And then there's the little tease trailer for Toxic Avenger which uh, you don't get to see much except for Toxie in silhouette and a load of uh, news reports done on a really grainy camera. But there is some shots that show that it's not all going to be low-budget schlock. It's going to be schlock, but it looks nice and uh, well shot and roll on the main trailer so we can get to see Toxie in action. So that's the news. But sadly, before we go, two very iconic sad passings this week. Uh, let's start with David McCallum. David McCallum, TV fans will recognize as playing Ducky in NCIS. And for those of us who are much older, David McCallum, for us, will always be one of the following. Either Ilya Kuryakin from The Marvelous Man from Uncle. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the series that, that made him a huge international star alongside Robert Bourne and basically cemented his career. One of my all-time favorite series as a kid absolutely absolutely loved it and then um if you got a little bit older the invisible man uh, which was a schlocky series yeah but mccallum was great in it for me and then we had it's growing up as a child watching sapphire and steel sapphire and steel which i think is, is so ready for a reboot and yes boy he was so good in that and it is such a good series and i think you can find it on Britbox. yes it is but it is such a, a fantastic series, which I'd, I'd love to see rebooted. And of course, um, it was a star on the on the big screen as well, The Great Escapes, The Mosquito Squadron. Um, he was in the TV series Coldest, in which he was uh, absolutely brilliant. A fantastic actor with such a huge amount of work behind him, uh, as well as musical work. And we had a thing today at home when uh, my other half said, is it true that David McCallum, one of his tracks, The Edge, was sampled for US rapper's hit single, The Next Episode, the Dr. Dre one, which featured yeah. Snoop Dogg? Uh, yes, that was David McCallum. Uh, a sad loss and, and an incredibly cool actor. And um, but, but boy, what a body of work and, and went out at the age of, of 90. A sad loss, as well as what's been mentioned, Night to Remember, greatest story ever told. He popped up in The Outer Limits in a few of the... Uh, yeah, well, the great Outer Limits episodes there. as well. And he, he's also 
been adding his voice to animated series over the past couple of decades, including one which I, I used to sit and watch with my kids, Ben 10. I love Ben 10. For me, like I say, Sapphire and Steel is, I think it's what it introduced to me to him. And then I, I stumbled on Man From U.N.C.L.E. after Sapphire and Steel. So I started off with my head being absolutely warped by scurry, supernatural, temporal stories before I went and just watched Action Adventure. But he was a great actor. 90s, a solid, solid innings with a great body of work behind him. Um, a sad loss, but one who there's so much work out there that we can just remember him by. Uh, the other great loss this week was, of course, the passing of Michael Gambon. When you use the term beloved actor, I think you have to use it as respect of Michael Gambon, who passed away at the age of 82 this week. Uh, renowned for his performances on both stage screen and the TV screen. And um, most newer fans would, of course, recognise him as Albus Dumbledore from the Harry Potter films, who joined um, the series in 2004 as the Prisoner of Azkaban after replacing the, the late Richard Harris. Those of us who know him from other work was, of course, the cook, the thief, the wife and his lover. He appeared in Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, Matthew Vaughan's Lair Cake. He was in Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Sizu. And it was one of the voices in Fantastic Mr. Fox. He was a solid jobbing actor. He's one of the ones that we mentioned so many times as like those actors who always bring something to a form performance. And you'll have seen him in so many things. Plunkett and McLean, The Monkey's Tail, Sky Captain. I mean, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. That and Layer Cake in the same year was both ends of the spectrum of my kind of passion for films. Pulpy sci-fi and genre-based crime stories. Like you said, Harry Potter is what younger audiences will recognise him for when he stepped into the shoes that had been left empty after the sad passing of Richard Harris. But over the years, every time that he popped up in something, he always brought something, including when he just provided voice for Paddington and Paddington 2, where he voiced oh, yeah, yeah. Paddington's uncle Pastuzo. And his voice was instantly recognisable because he just had that kind of air to him. It's a sad loss, but the great body, I mean, again, it's someone with a huge body of TV, film, and like you say, stage work that they've just left such an amazing legacy. Rest in peace, Michael Gambon. And if you can find it, his breakthrough role on TV was in the BBC's The Singing Detective. And if you can find it, it is well, well worth watching. A, a fantastic, yes. fantastic performance. And that, folks, that's the news. We've still got the deep dive to come, but before any of that, please hit the subscription button and like button if you haven't already done so. Because we want to increase our listeners and we can only do that by imploring you to hit the subscription button and the like buttons and become part of the Film File family. Once you become part of the Film File family, you can get in touch with us. You can get in touch with us anyway, but it does help if you're part of the family. And there are so many different ways that you can do that. Head over to social media channels. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Reds. We're everywhere. We are everywhere. Just search for Filmfile UK. You should find us on there. You can also get in touch with us directly via email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We're always happy to hear your thoughts on films that you love, films that you don't love as much, films you want us to watch for a deep dive, films that we've covered in a deep dive and you don't agree with what we thought of it. Get in touch. We're just all part of a sharing, caring community who all have our own ideas. Now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. 
We're going back you know, to 1992. Yeah. Francis Ford Coppola's Grand Guignol of a movie. That is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah, Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight. This one we face can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. The power of his evil desire has no end. Bram Stoker's Dracula starred Gary Oldman as Count Dracula, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, Keanu Reeves, Monica Bellucci, Carrie Elwes, in what was, at the time, actually a, a, a stunning film which reinvented the character of Dracula for a new audience. And interestingly enough, this is one of the first films that I reviewed, having gone to the press screening. And it was one of my first radio outings. And I'm a little bit stunned that this film actually came out in 1992, which has suddenly <laughs> aged me. But I've got some thoughts on it. Um, whether I love it or not, we shall we shall figure out. But one thing that, about this film is you can't ignore it. When this came out, it was... Well, I, I was in Sheffield studying, and we went to what used to be the, the three-screen Odeon near the City Hall to go and see it, and it was in the big screen in there. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of the novel of Dracula. And this was promoted all the way through the marketing of it as this was going to be the faithful adaptation. This is Bram Stoker's Dracula. All those other Draculas, they just were try, trying to be it, but they changed too much. And this is true. Every adaptation of Dracula, be it one which was actually called Dracula or things like Nosferatu that just ripped off Dracula and did its own thing, They've all changed aspects, usually combining some characters together, limiting the cast down or changing some of the flow of the story. But Francis Ford Coppola, no, he was going back to the original material and he was adapting it as a pure adaptation. And However, when I watched it for the first time, I loved it. But I also walked out going, that's not a pure adaptation. I enjoy what it was. And it was the closest that we've had, but it's made a lot of changes. It, it follows the story that you'll have seen across all of the Dracula films, including the recent BBC adaptation. The centuries-old uh, vampire, Count Dracula, reawakened in Transylvania, comes to England to seduce his barrister, Jonathan Harker's fiance Mina, and therefore inflict horror and terror in Great Britain. However, where is the book... It is the horror. It is the terror. Dracula is not a redeemable character. He is not a nice character. But Coppola decided to give some give some additional depth to Dracula. And so he merged it with the history of Vlad the Impaler. 
and had it that Vlad the Impaler renounced God after his wife had thrown herself out of the tower thinking he was dead at war and he returned to find her dead. Renounced God because how could God let this happen? That's how he became a vampire, how he became Dracula the Immortal. And then Winona Ryder's Mina Harker is a reincarnation of that lost wife. And so Dracula falls in love with her and wants to wants to take her and it's all romance and it goes for the love story approach. And that's the bit that I wasn't too sure of when I first watched it because I felt it was unnecessary and it I don't want Dracula to be humanized. I want Dracula to be that otherworldly undead menace and just completely irredeemable. It shouldn't have that. And in doing it, Coppola also had to, to balance things out, change one of the other key characters. And that other key character is the character of Van Helsing, who now has gone from being in the books and every interpretation that we've ever seen, a very charming, a fatherly, a protective, a pure, like soul kind of character. He's now got an edge to him of darkness. And I don't think Van Helsing quite works with that. But it was necessary because he's given some light to Dracula. They're the two key changes that jarred against me when I was watching this for the first time. It had an interesting development process. Winona Ryder initially brought the script written by James V. Hart to Coppola. The director had agreed to meet her so they could they could clear the air after she pulled out of The Godfather Part 3, which caused uh, production delays on the films and led to the belief that Coppola disliked her. When Coppola saw the script, his eyes lit up and she suggested that if you have a chance, read this. Uh, he actually handed it over to him and he was intrigued from the get-go and went about with a huge, um, with a huge casting list and landed on, at that point, a very young, and still not a big star, Gary Oldman. And I think if anything stands out about this film, it has to be the bravado performance by Gary Oldman. The look and style of Dracula, I think, has become more iconic than the film itself. Yeah. The whole look and style of the whole film is an absolute splendor to behold. Every aspect of the filming techniques used to present another worldly feel the movement of shadows on the walls, the elaborate costumes. Coppola wanted something that was was going to look different. And he got, art, he got artists to storyboard the whole film before it went into production, then added music to it and inserted clips of, I believe it was Beauty and the Beast by Jean Cocteau and artwork from like symbolists such as Gustav Klimt, which he thought represented the feel that he wanted. And he showed his design team this rough cut and said, give me this. And as a result, the visual style, watching it this week in beautiful high definition, still holds up really well visually. The costume design throughout is authentic, but with a skewed otherworldly side to it. And there's things like the design of Dracula's castle that looks like a robed figure sat on a throne. It, it's just smart design work that it lends well to the film and actually benefits the for all the flaws that I have with it as a purist of uh, the Dracula novel, the visual style of it compensates and turns it into a cinematic experience for me that I'm willing to accept the changes that are being made. Now, it is overblown in the best sense of the world, and it is Coppola's vision of Dracula rather than, as, as we pointed out, Bram Stoker's vision. And he, he brings something fresh to the character, and, and by bringing in Gary Oldman, who delivers 
a groundbreaking for his career performance. And it's a performance that towers above everyone else because it's so over the top. It's such an extreme performance that everyone is cast aside in his shadow to a degree. Um, and that's the problem I have with this film. I think it's, it's beautifully romantic. I think the term operatic comes to mind. Yeah. It's, it's uh, beautifully realised. It adds something different to the Lord of the Undead and, and gives the character, no pun intended, a heart uh, to be driven a stake through. However, there is something, there's more style than substance to this film. Yes, take away uh, everyone's over-the-top performance. It's kind of okay. The big hole in it for me, and I, I love this actor a lot, is... There's the elephant in the room. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves is a real misstep as a performance. Now, originally, Coppola wanted uh, Christian Slater, who turned it down and apparently regretted that. But Keanu Reeves doesn't have uh, uh, the acting ability to do first the accent, mm. and then it's, it's another task to make him seem believable. And he gets lost in the shadow of Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. Like you say, we do love Keanu Reeves. We've got nothing against him. He was just so poorly cast. His delivery of every line is flat. It's like he just stepped off Bill and Ted and was still playing Ted. It's all like, oh, I, there is the man himself. He is looking at me. And it's awful delivery. And it's given even more ridiculous nature by his body movements at the same time. Because he's trying to be animated at the same time, but it looks like a mannequin being controlled by strings. You might as well be, just be watching an episode of Thunderbirds. He's the weakest link within the whole thing. But thankfully, because of how much the Oldman was putting in on the other side of it, the first act of the film becomes all Oldman's showboating and um, you know crawling up walls backwards uh, kind of approach that just keeps that interest in there. I need to say... On the flip side, Tom Waits as Renfield, that's my favourite interpretation of that yes. character yeah, in great. any version. He is magnificent from his opening shot, which again, the style in which it's shot, because it, he's introduced from an overhead camera looking down on him with him, like bending, contorting up and speaking upwards as he's trying to eat a fly. And straight from that, you get the distorted nature of this broken soul. And Waits is magnificent throughout, even towards the end when you know the, what his fate's going to be. You'd start to pity him. You start to feel for him. Absolute scenery chewing. Yes, but done in the right way. There, there's a lot to like. There is an awful lot to like in this film. It's, it's like a, a great dinner that is overcooked in places far too sumptuous with far too many appetizers going off. Uh, and you're just left feeling sated. Uh, and maybe a little bit, a little bit with the fact that you've overeaten by the end of it. I, I don't hate the film. I really don't. I'm, I like it a lot. I like elements of it rather than I like the whole thing. Mm. Yes, Oldman is is incredibly at the top, but he's hugely charismatic. It is the version now that you associate with Count Dracula as much as Christopher Lee and Bella Lugosi. It is a landmark vampire horror film, and it is a fantastic and yet idiosyncratic adaptation of uh, of a novel which has never really been adapted properly. And I still think there's room to it. Uh, when we were talking about this, I mentioned to Andy that I think I, I prefer the uh, John Badham version of the stage play, which starred Frank Langella. I think that is a better Dracula movie than this Dracula movie. 
Yeah. And uh, a much more romantic version and a different take on The Count with Frank Langella's performance, uh, which is based on the Broadway show. Uh, and it's not as flashy as Coppola's version, but I think it's it's a stronger, a stronger version of Dracula. But if you haven't seen this, you will know it because it is so iconic, because it's been spoofed all over the place. Um, I remember uh, an episode of The Simpsons in particular, that there is some very familiar imagery in this film. And it is worth checking out. I want to do a quick mention as well to one character of this film, which is the music score by Vocekila, which is, it's one of those scores that I picked up as soon as I'd finished watching the film. I went straight to the shop to buy the soundtrack because it's such sweeping, majestic music that underscores every current and every ebb throughout it. Even during the kind of saggy middle act, the score always makes you clear as to where your emotions are supposed to be getting led. Rewatching it this week, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's not a great film. I've still got my problems that I had with it at the start, but I'm willing to abandon them as long as I accept that this is not the definitive. And this is this is something that you get with so many different adaptations. You get it with Batman. People say definitive Batman. There's no such thing as a definitive one. They've not been done yet. And to this date, there's still not a definitive Dracula for the screen. But by using the diary extracts and the voiceovers for the letters backwards and forwards in this, this was the closest to the book that there's been. It's not perfect, but it's a beautiful looking film and it's well worth checking out. If you want to find it, Andy, where can you find Bram Stoker's Dracula? Not available for free on any service at the moment, but it's only a couple of quid to rent. Or just go out and buy yourself the best version that you can on Blu-ray because it looks sumptuous in its full glory it's it deserves to be seen on the biggest and best screen switch the lights off in your living room if you're watching it at home and make sure there's no glare on the tv because you can appreciate every detail in every set design that's this week's deep dive we'll be back again next week and now it's time for this week's reviews i've not been in the cinema seat this week so i'm leaving it all up to andy but andy start off with a film that you know i want to see and that's creator like it or not, humankind will end. We should never have let AI out of the box. Did you locate the weapon? This can't be right. She's just a kid. My name is Alfie. You're my friend? She dies with the rest of them. I can't do that. Seatbelt. In the not-too-distant future, AI has become a part of human lives throughout, with machines living and working alongside humanity, benefiting the entire world. That is, until 2055, when a nuclear device is detonated in Los Angeles, apparently by rogue AI units who turned against mankind. Whilst the Western world pledges to eradicate AI from the planet, in New Asia, AI is allowed to survive and indeed thrive. The US pledges to take out the mysterious chief architect behind the new advanced AI, called Nermata, and utilize the high-altitude aerospace platform Nomad to deploy devastating attacks on targets. A decade after the LA destruction, one US undercover operative, Joshua, played by John David Washington, feels he is close to uncovering Nomata, when US forces strike his very home, resulting in a devastating loss to Joshua, which starts the road to him doubting his orders and the ideals of the US forces he works for. The creator is exactly the type of sci-fi that I love. It has action, it has stunning visual effects and design, and it has an analogous underlying theme and message that grant it some depth and connection to the present world around us. 
It also has a heart, a lot of it, both human and artificial. And much like the sci-fi I grew up with, and even many episodes of Star Trek, it ponders the question about what is life and can machines be so advanced to be considered as their own fully realized life form? To elaborate further on how it ponders these would be to drop spoilers, so I'm not going to dig into it. Suffice to say, there's a lot of sharp messaging woven into the very fabric of what otherwise is a solid action romp. Gareth Edwards delivers perhaps his strongest work here, building on the slick visual style that he brought to Rogue One, making a stunningly beautiful film that cost a moderate $80 million to make. Yet, it puts the effects of many of this year's considerably more expensive blockbusters to shame. From strikingly familiar yet subtly futuristic vistas to the craft and weaponry, everything is given a believably advanced level of design, making them feel close to what we have around us now, but just different enough to feel futuristic. The AI machines all feel a part of the world they're in, from the metal-headed classic mechs reminiscent of designs such as Chappie, to the almost perfectly human in initial look, but with hollow-backed heads of machine, that you pretty soon forget that you are watching some sharp visual effects work, and you just kind of accept them all as being real. This is a film that jumped straight into my top picks for the year, and it's one I can see myself enjoying many times over the years to come. The stunning performances from all involved, especially from Washington, Watanabe and Alison Janney, all round off the whole production perfectly. I laughed, I thrilled, and yes, I cried. This film delivered it all. Um, there was something I was going to review, and I know you're leaving it for our neat things. I jumped onto your patch then. <laughs> uh, um, it might have to be, show, it might have to be a joint neat thing this week. I think, I think um, it deserves it. Yeah, should we do that? Yeah. Okay, so uh, you've also seen Andy uh, Saw X, is it? And, and never been a fan of the Saw movies. You'd have this would have to be the Citizen Kane of torture porn for to to win me over. Hello, everyone. You have played your last con game, but not your last game. Out of all the men to cheat, you pick John Frame. <laughs> You're going to want to really listen carefully to the rules. This is not retribution. It's a reawakening. Let's be honest here. I went into this expecting little. The Saw franchise should never have been a franchise. The first film was a solid horror stroke thriller, and it still holds up well today. It's remembered for how gruesome it was when, in actuality, it was no more gruesome than Seven. And thematically, it felt very similar to that film. However, from the second film onwards, the franchise that wasn't planned worked its hardest to up the ante and trap designs each time and backpedal on an overly complex plotline in an attempt to keep adding twists that ended up just becoming a little tiresome. Referred to by many as torture porn, whilst the first film wasn't any such thing, there's no denying that the only thing people spoke about and flocked to see in the latter films were the twisted traps and the lingering attention to every break and every puncture on screen. It's a franchise that has sprung back to life a couple of times over the last decade with Jigsaw and Spiral, both films feeling like pretty empty additions. We didn't need a Sorex. However, turns out maybe we did. Set between the events of the first and second film, John Kramer has been receiving treatment for his cancer to no avail, and he ends up travelling to Mexico to undergo a risky experimental procedure, only to find that the whole thing was a scam that preys on the desperate, filling them with false hope. Thus, he sets about staging a multiple trap lesson on all of those involved to teach them the errors of their ways and put them on the right path. You know the score by now, yeah? What makes this work where the other films after the first one failed? 
Well, whilst there's still a variety of twisted traps on offer for the squeamish delight, the story around it feels a lot more complete. And in having John Kramer once more played by the imposing Tobin Bell as the central presence in his own film makes a huge difference. His motives here are revenge on a personal level, but always with a way for each to survive, his usual methodology. And because he is present at all the traps, this time we get to see him react to each of them. And there are times when you can almost sense some disappointment in him that his victims have failed the tests. The first act of this film, whilst it does have a gimmicky trap for early shock value, is quite a serious look at Kramer's desperation to be cured. And it's impossible to not actually begin to care for him. You even get the sense that had the cure not been a scam, Jigsaw itself would have ceased to exist because John would have changed his own ways and embraced his new lease on life. So you feel his pain and anguish when he's forced to plot his retribution. However, and here's the one big issue in the film, when you make a sequel to a film almost 20 years later, but you set it right after the events of the first film, you are always going to have the problem of real-world ageing be a complication. Now, with Tobin Bell, it can be overlooked. John has been undergoing cancer treatment, and as anyone who has experience with seeing the effects of such heavy treatment, that can age you considerably. But Amanda is back in quite a prominent role once more. And even though she's ageing gracefully, Shawnee Smith can no longer realistically pass for someone in their mid to late 20s. And any attempts made by the production to disguise it serve to make it look worse. Every time Amanda pops up on screen, it jarred me out of the immersion, sadly dampening the moments. The film could have survived without her present. Her inclusion seems to be purely fan servicing and nothing more. But that aside, I found myself actually quite invested in this film. And I think it's the sequel that we should have gotten 19 years ago rather than that rejigged script that they dug out of a bin somewhere, forced Jigsaw into, and ham-fistedly tried to link it together, which resulted in the messy direction that the series went in from that point onwards. For me, Saw and Saw X are the only films in this franchise that are worth seeing. And then your final film, Andy, is Dumb Money. Now, this seems to be following a trend that we've seen over the last year, which is movies based on, on business. So uh, we had Air, which we both enjoyed. Uh, Tetris, yeah. again, which we, we both enjoyed. The Beanie Baby movie, which you didn't enjoy. Is this as good as what I've heard, or is it a Beanie Baby movie? How much did we make today? Five million. And yesterday? Four million. We're, like, really rich. GameStop now, another record high. Wall Street is betting that GameStop is going to fail. And if it fails, these hedge fund guys make a ton of money. They literally call us dumb money. You got rich dudes coming at you. This is class warfare. How much did we lose today? A billion. And yesterday? A billion. Dumb Money, exclusively in theatres. Remember a few years ago when there was all that reporting on how a bunch of folk on Reddit decided to buy shares in GameStop, the failing video game outlet, and it pushed the price up to ridiculous numbers, causing a huge kerfuffle on Wall Street as the rich folk got scared that the little people could lose the money. Well, this is the film of that fiasco taking a similar approach to films such as The Big Short in trying to explain the overly complicated machinations of Wall Street traders in a pretty jovial way. Craig Gillespie directs this real-life tale of Keith Gill, played by Paul Dano, a.k.a. Roaring Kitty, who gained popularity during COVID when he sank his life savings into GameStop and then live-streamed and chatted online about what he was doing, encouraging others to do the same and save a shop that he loved from going under. The result, thanks to a no-fee stock purchasing app called Robinhood, was that many who were on the breadline began picking up cheap stock and then watched as their actions pushed the share price higher and higher and higher. 
This film looks at a bunch of characters from different backgrounds whose lives were affected by it all, including Melvin Capital's Gabe Plotkin, played by Seth Rogen, who had a lot of money invested in shorting GameStop, effectively betting on them going under, and so lost billions through the actions of Gil and his fellow dumb money traders. Look, the complications of Wall Street can get confusing, and that's actually the point here. The traders make it so elitist and confusing that they hope it will dissuade those who could benefit most from being part of it from actually getting involved. The rich get to stay rich, the poor get to stay poor. And Kitty and his cohorts shook the world of finance in such a big way. This film works by taking that underdog side and populating it with such a likeable cast. Dano is wonderfully nerdy as Gil. Pete Davidson as his slacker brother is great. We have Vincent D'Onofrio's in there, America Ferreira, Nick Offerman, Anthony Ramos, Shailene Woodley and Sebastian Stan. All of them on hand to bring a great mix of characters to engage with for a solid 104 minutes of witty and also insightful fun. I, I really fancy Dumb Money. As much as, as we enjoyed Air, we, I think we both agreed that it would work better as a streamer. And, and I feel this will be as well. And I think that's where I'll enjoy this. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think this this is a film that will find its home when it goes to streaming. This is one that people will gravitate towards on home release. So those are the films that are out this week. What's coming up over the next week? We've got quite a good week ahead of us. Oh, that's good to um, hear. So it's cinemas. Um, the Exorcist Believer releases this week. Uh, we've both got our eye on it. Uh, we're both big I, fans of the original. I thought this was another couple of weeks away. Because it, mm. it seemed a little bit quiet on the uh, on the promotional front. In addition, there's another company film to fit that bill of the things like air and stuff that we talked about. Blackberry releases across cinemas in the UK this week. Uh, on... Kids, Blackberry was a <laughs> very popular <laughs> at one point uh, media service. You're it not likely thing. to remember it because it wasn't that significant in the scheme of things. Over on Now TV and Sky, I hated it. You might like it. Cocaine Bear lands this week. Mm. Um, John Travolta crime drama Mobland lands this week. It's got Sky Original written all over it. No, it's and, it's it's bathed in Sky Original. And there's a film called Unwelcome, which offers some Irish spooky shenanigans. Over on Netflix, The Conjuring: The Devil Made Me Do It has already landed now. By the wow. time this episode airs, you, you um, thought it was okay, if I remember. It's okay. I'm, yeah. a, I'm not. I'm not hugely beholden to the Conjuring series, but they capture the chills well enough. Korean action thriller Ballerina which sounds exactly like the plot of the upcoming John Wick ballerina, um, lands on Netflix this week. You put it up on IMDb and somebody comes along, nicks your idea. <laughs> and Nine Days, which sees five souls interviewed to see which one's going to get a life on Earth, looks like an intriguing watch this coming week. Over on Amazon, After Everything, which apparently is the fifth film in the After franchise, which is news to me. I didn't even know there was an After <laughs> franchise. And there's comedy comedy horror that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Totally Killer, lands this week, which uh, sees some time travel shenanigans with a serial killer. Over on Disney+, Plus, it's Loki season two, let's be honest. Yeah, I guess we'll be because talking it, about that next week. Because it's that or The Haunted Mansion. So it's Loki season two. It's Loki season two. Paramount Plus has Pet Cemetery Bloodlines which looks absolutely <laughs> terrible. So I'll report in on that next week. I'm not an advocate for taking your pets and throwing them into the street, but this particular pet <laughs> cemetery, take your pet out and throw it into the street. And that is all that's coming this week. Quite a good spread. And that's all there is from us for this week, as uh, we're about to call it a day. We've tested out this new uh, streaming service. <laughs> Fingers crossed it's all going to work perfectly. But before we go, and we do this every week, it's our neat things. Things that we've enjoyed 
and we both enjoyed exactly the same <laughs> thing. It's neat for both of us. Go on, Andrew, kick it off. Yes, so uh, Lee was going to bring this to the reviews and I had to jump in and go, whoa, 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 whoa. I told you in a text this was going to be my neat thing. And we don't normally tell each other in advance what the neat things are. We normally keep it as a surprise. We find An out when we start talking about it. But with this one, I knew that Lee would want it as well. So I jumped ahead of him. I wanted to get in. And we've been talking about it. We've been waiting for it. We've been hyping it up. And we were hoping that it would deliver. And it has. This week, we had the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. And the other three um, shorts, The Swan, The Ratcatcher, and Poison. The Roald Dahl short stories brought to visual life through the eye of Wes Anderson. And if ever there was a match made in heaven, it is these. I've described it to people at work who are, haven't watched them yet. Is It's Jack and Ori with Wes Anderson. It, I, I take it one step further, Andy. It's, it's Jack and Ori, Wes Anderson on acid. Because it is <laughs> one, of, um, one of the most beautiful pieces of television that I think I've seen in, a, in an awful long time. When they said he was going to be adapting them, I didn't know whether it was going to be adapting it as in take it to the new medium and turn it into a script or something else. And what he's done, it, it, it is the story is getting read out. The actors in it are reading the story, but they are interacting with the story and the scenery around them is evolving around them to represent elements of the story. And what a great cast. Benedict Cumberbatch, Ray Fiennes, Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley and Richard Ayoade, all in there, all bringing some charm, some quirk, some humour and some thought-provoking elements to this beautiful, beautifully told stories from the mind of one of, one of this nation's most beloved and most prolific of writers, but presented yeah, on screen by a director who just seems to be the perfect fit. As you said, Andy, it's a story within a story. And that kind of structure is perfect for Anderson because yeah. he's, he's done it before. He did it with uh, Grand Budapest, for instance. You've got one character telling a story, which enters into another story, and, and there you go, and then you're off and running. And as you said, what I, I didn't realise and didn't expect, we are, we are watching a play with the beautiful, uh, beautifully realised 2D painted backdrops of things like a, uh, a London library or um, uh, an Indian jungle and everything mm. is in the frame and the frame can be moved or taken out. And we are always aware that we are watching this uh, this dynamic. There is so many throwbacks to things that, that Wes Anderson uh, does very, very, very well. The um, straight to camera narration, the, the sort of toy theatre that uh, Anderson has used before. It's, it's, a, it's beautiful. Uh, and it, this is a, a delightful first instalment into into this quartet. There couldn't be a better match than Roald Dahl yeah. and Wes Anderson. I've watched all four of the short stories. Um, it was a treat every morning when they landed at 8 a.m., just before I was heading off to work, to watch the shorts before they disappear. And three of them more or less got full marks for me. And only one of, only one of them got half a mark knocked off. But I think it's going to get creeping back up because okay. on reflection, I absolutely loved it. The the one that I gave the lowest score to was Poison, but it's still a great story. And it was still presented in that same charming way. Uh, the Swan, I think, is my favourite. Uh, Ratcatcher is marvellous. Uh, Ray Fiennes is having a field day in that one and absolutely becomes a character. 
but all four of them just brings brings something to them. And they all finish with like a little holding card, which is just a little bit of facts and trivia about the or- origin of that story, how Dahl came up with it, etc. I'd love to see a load more Dahl stuff adapted in this this way, a load more of his short stories adapted in this manner by Wes Anderson because he's handled the material respectfully and he's he's basically just presented he's presented a visual version of an audible book yeah yeah it is it's it's um it's pure storytelling and it's uh it's storytelling along with just a pure visual delight and the fact that they are under 40 minutes they just steamroller along and for the first time i think it's given us uh, a neat thing a neat thing that we both enjoyed and we cannot recommend this highly enough this is uh perfect in in so many ways it's a great cast great wes anderson i loved it and yeah you looked at it as well. Yep. And that's Thanks. us done, folks. We're out of here. We've made it to the end of the episode. Uh, almost intact. We'll be back again with another film file. Hopefully, we'll see you at a Q&A that, that we've done in Sheffield. We have some interesting news to tell you about an upcoming event. And as ever, it's been a pleasure. Yep. Fingers crossed the edit goes well with this one. Uh, fingers crossed um, the audio all comes through okay. Off. If not, yeah. Over this next few weeks, you might notice audio starts to get jostled about a bit because we had this every time that we jumped to a different platform that we've had to get used to the new software. But so far, I'm liking what I've been playing with this, even though most of this isn't going to make it to the video channel at all. While we've been recording, I've been throwing things up on the screen just to test out how how I'd be able to like if we decided to release it as a video footage or live stream it, how I'd be able to play stuff on it. Trust me, I'm having fun over this side. Um, Weatherly's been having fun getting distracted by occasional images of movie posters <laughs> popping up on, in front of him. I it, don't it, know. It kept me on my toes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's a new system. It's something that we can experiment with. Fingers crossed it's all gone well. We'll see you next week. And Andy, they say you're a man of good taste. You Mainly because I didn't sleep on Monday job night. Out. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been a week and I can't remember what the question I had last week. Uh, Spinning off, off the back of the Continental, um, talking about prequels that you'd love to see. Oh, that was it, yeah. Did we, have we done that one already? No, we asked it. <laughs> oh, did we? No, we didn't get there. <laughs> we did we asked it last right. week. We've not actually covered it as a whole thing. Oh, okay. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that was that weird sense of deja vu. We've, a, we've asked sequels. We've asked um, which characters would you like to see brought back for a sequel That's that have it. never had I a sequel, that. but we've not done prequels. Done so because we want to improve all our following, all our followers. We want to improve. We want to improve our followers. You're not good enough.